0: Good morning. Good morning. Was that awesome? That song. Oh my gosh, man. Hey, Brian, you listen, you're a gentleman and a scholar. Hey, hey, would you do one more thing for me? Would uh would you move that m- music stand? I can't see Brian and Mary over there and they need some preaching today, I'm sure. Uh, there, oh, there's Mike Davis back there. I guarantee he needs some preaching. Amen. Amen? <laughs> all right, how you guys feeling this morning? I would appreciate your prayers. I, I woke up um, not on the wrong side of the bed, but um, I, I'm all jittery this morning. Either my potassium level is low or my sugar level is low. And uh, so I'm, I'm a little jittery, jittery and, and shaky. Uh, so if the message is not good, it's not my fault. See how that works? No, I'm I'm just kidding. But I would appreciate your prayers for those things. And then, and then I got to got to church and realized I don't have my Bible. I mean, I I have a Bible, but not not the one. You know, the one with my notes and all that stuff in it. So uh, today's just going to be a challenge for us, for sure. Anyway, it's great to see you guys, and uh, welcome to Rocky River Church. Um, if you have your Bible with you, open it up or turn it on and go to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 25. We're actually finishing up a message that we started last week. This is um, part two of a message that we're call, uh, calling uh, Clean House or Cleaning House, um, Don. Dawn, Don's going to help me with some pictures this morning. And uh, do, do you have uh, the first one back there? Can we pull it up? Okay, now that that's Henry VIII. Now he is a big boy, but uh, I think when we put the picture in there, we stretched it out a little bit. <laughs> he, he he wasn't quite that portly, but he was uh, he was a pretty good sized boy. But but you guys you guys recognize Henry the Eighth, right? Um, m- most people know Henry because of, um, because of his six wives and, um, uh, divorces that, uh, caused a big problem between him and the, uh, and the church and, uh, uh the way he, well, I say he, he divorced all of his wives. He didn't divorce all of them, uh, about four of them, at least he had them killed. Uh, not a, not a very good guy, not a very nice guy at all. Uh, but I, I, I want to show you just, just a couple of things. One, for trivia's sake. How many of you like trivia? All right, just a few of us. In, in case you're ever asked this, uh, when you're at Buffalo Wild Wings uh, at trivia night or somewhere like that, you'll, you'll know. Have, have you ever heard the phrase, it'll cost you an arm and a leg? Uh, d- during the time period in which Henry lived, a painter who was going to paint a, a portrait of you, they charged by how much of a person's body you could see. So um, it was one price for a headshot down to your shoulders, then it was a, another price if you could see your arms, and then another price if you could see your legs. So you could usually tell how wealthy a person was by that the portrait that they had painted of themselves and how many body parts you could see. And so shortly after, King Henry had this uh, portrait of himself painted, which was kind of like his last portrait, the one he wanted all the monarchs that would come behind him to remember, um, uh, painters started talking about the cost of a painting would be an arm and a leg. And you were rich if you could afford to have the arm and the leg painted. All right, or right. let me show you this. You see uh, Henry's collar up here, and see his sleeves. You see how fitted they are. You, you can tell that, right? It looks like lace. I know. I know the picture is is a, a little bit skewed, but uh, you, you can see the the wrist. How his sleeves are kind of tight there, and then up at the top. That was not just because he's a pretty good-sized fella. Do you know why it is? Body odor. It was to control body odor. Let, Let me give you a brief history of body odor. The Egyptians which really kind of mark, in, in some ways, the beginning of civilization. They were very clean people. You, you might even remember this from our study uh, on, in the life of Joseph. The, the Egyptians were all about bathing, and they had oils and creams and uh, different things like that that they could you know put on their body to, to really not so much keep them from having body odor, but more to mask. Their, their body odor. But they, they were clean. The only thing that the Egyptians could not figure out is how to handle their lice problem. They couldn't get rid of lice. So the merchant class and the ruling class, they just started shaving all the, head, uh, all, all the hair on their body from head to toe. They just got rid of, of all of their hair. And then... Um, things take another turn sort of up and to the right when you get to the Greeks and the Romans. They are also very clean people. And they made bathhouses very very popular. In fact, you can go to the ruins and practically any Roman ancient city and you can find the bathhouse. They they were all about taking baths. And uh, then because they didn't have right guard or, uh, you know, speed stick or, or whatever... Um, they would put on heavy perfumes. In fact, they're they're the ones who started putting perfumes on on their animals and clipping their animals. Uh, Some of the generals for the Roman government would even dip their horses into perfumes so that uh, the, the horses would smell good. But sometime during the Middle Ages, gosh, around... 1,066, 65 to 75, up to about the late 1400s, the church decided that it was a sin to be naked, even in the bathtub. So you you can imagine how cumbersome it would be to try to take a bath in your clothes. And so what happened is that people just... Kind of stopped bathing, and then they had to figure out some way to deal with their body odor, and uh, they would have to do it for months and months at a time. And in fact, it's said that even the royals, like like Henry VIII, they would bathe once a year. Think about that, and so they would do everything around their clothes that they could to tie up all of that odor. And really, it, it didn't change in, in the, the churched, civilized world until the 1900s. And people would start bathing, usually on Saturday night. Everybody in the family took a bath. Have you heard the old expression, don't throw the baby out with the bath water? That's because if you had a family of, say, nine or ten, everyone got a bath on Saturday night so that they could go to church on Sunday and be all clean. But usually, dad would get the bath first, and then it would just work its way down to the baby. The baby might be the tenth person in the tub. and If the baby disappeared under the water, you might lose the baby. And then when you throw out the bath water, you might throw that baby out with the bath water. The point is it's so dirty and nasty You ain't sure if the baby's in there or not. You you, you might not realize it, but I I hope you will by the end of, of today's message. Jesus cleansing the temple is not just about Him cleaning out a building. It has a lot to do with Him cleaning out you and me. One of the things I want to point out along the way as we're unpacking these verses is that our God doesn't live in buildings anymore. Since the New Testament times, since Jesus, God no longer dwells in buildings made out of stone and brick and wood, and mortar. He lives in the hearts and the lives of the people who trust him as Lord and Savior. So again, today's message is not so much about Jesus cleaning out the building, but it's about him cleaning out our often sin-stinky lives. Let's jump in this morning and, and start Unpacking. You guys with me still? I didn't lose you. All right, here, here, here we go. After this, Jesus went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for just a few days. Uh, the, the this that John is referring to is, uh, in, in the verses that are directly before these, Jesus turns water into wine. So now that miracle or that sign is finished, and so now Jesus transitions away. But he trans- transitions away with his mother and his brothers, because I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. And so he, he leaves with them, and he goes to Capernaum, which was by the Sea of Galilee. It was sort of Jesus headquarters for his ministry. And don't we have a picture of that back there? I just want you guys to see it. I'm, I'm not going to say much about it, but I just want you to be able to see it. This is an aerial shot looking down in the area of, of Capernaum. And you, you can tell that it's not a very big place. But if you remember in the Gospel of Mark, in the first chapter, it kind of opens with Jesus in the synagogue And he casts demons out of the man who who comes in full of demons. He does an exorcism right there on this man. This is the synagogue ruins right here. And this is a beautiful Catholic church with a clear floor that's built directly over Peter's um, mother-in-law's home. But uh, sometimes I like to just show you those pictures to remind you that the stories that we read about, the places that we read about, they're, they're real places, they're real stories. These are not once upon a time things uh, that happened, like in a, in a make-believe world. Jesus and his disciples, they're real people, and they, they lived in, in real places. So Jesus takes a break. Verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you guys remember from last week, Passover is an annual, about a week-long celebration where all Jewish families make a pilgrimage into Jerusalem. And as a part of the celebration, they all take an, an animal, usually a lamb. They slaughter that animal, and then they offer it up to God for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, at Passover, there would have been... Thousands and thousands, in fact, maybe as many as three to four million people that filed into Jerusalem, where normally there's about 80,000 to 100,000 people living there. So during the uh, celebration of Passover, it it would just be packed. Verse 14, in the temple courts, where the people would come to worship, where they would come and offer their sacrifice, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. So what was supposed to be happening is that the people were there to worship God. It, it, was, it was an annual time for the, the whole race of the Jewish people to come together and remember that God had saved his people from the Egyptians. And so I think Jesus knew what he was going to find there. But what what you would expect to find is that all of the people were excited. They were singing and worshiping and, and praising God. But instead, what Jesus found is that the, the people had just turned God's house, which is what he refers to it later as, they had turned God's house into a bazaar, a flea market. And for Jesus, what was even worse is that they had set up shop in the place that the foreigners could come in to worship God. And so from Jesus' perspective, you have to see this to, for everything else to make sense. So from Jesus' perspective, he walked into the temple, and the people who should care most about the celebration, the people who should care the most about God's house, the people who should be excited about God and the things of God, they're like, eh, it's no big deal. But then what ramps it up for Jesus is that They're preventing the people who might be excited, the people who want to be at the temple to worship God, they're preventing them from being able to pray and do all of the things that were expected of those who love God. They just didn't care. Just as a, a reminder, as a part of this celebration... The people had to go through their own homes and clean the homes from top to bottom, from one end to the other, kind of like spring cleaning. Uh, and they had to remove all of the yeast from their homes. You know what yeast is, right? It, it's what you put into to dough to make, bread ri- uh, to, to make bread rise. And um, for God and, and the children of Israel, the Jewish people, the yeast had become symbolic for impurities because it was something that was added in. And so God gave them the, the command to clean all of the yeast out of their homes and not put it in the bread for a whole week to, to remind them that sin has a way of creeping into our, our lives and, um, and bringing impurities into our lives. So The the people, for the most part, were about the rituals, and so they they were cleaning out their homes. But the most important house in Jerusalem, the house of God, was just full of sin. No one was doing anything to, to clean out God's house. You couldn't hear prayers in there because there are dirty barn animals in there. The only thing you can hear is the, the bleeding of um, bleat, not bleed. There is bleeding with the sacrifices. I'm just preacher humor, I'm sorry. It, as with most preacher humor, um, only boring preachers get that stuff. But you can hear the animals bleeding, the the lambs, the goats, the, the doves that they're selling, I mean, all of that stuff's going on, and people are being extorted out of their money, and they're being ripped off, and money changers are scamming everybody, and it's just this ugly, ugly mess, and no one was doing anything to clean out God's house, so Jesus did. Look again at verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords, probably the the ropes or the leashes that these animals were, were led in and out of the temple with. He made a whip out of the cords and drove them all out of the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Imagine that. John's gospel is the only one that records that Jesus makes this whip and goes Indiana Jones on all of the money changers and the thieves and robbers in this place. And some people struggle with this picture of Jesus. So some people don't want to think about Jesus like this because they like meek and mild Jesus. They don't like angry Jesus, where he has this righteous indignation about what's going on in God's house, as opposed to what ought to be going on in God's house. We don't like thinking about Jesus swinging that whip at the animals, and the New International Version uh, sort of smooths this over. But Jesus may have even been hitting at people, the, the the people who had who had turned. God's house into a den of thieves and robbers. One of the things that this ought to remind us of is that we have a, a way of turning a, a blind eye towards sinfulness. Sinfulness in our lives, sinfulness in the house of God, to just overlook things, to sort of just live with things, you know, that take place at church or take place in our homes or take place in other places in our society. We just kind of act like, well, it's no big deal. Everybody else does it, so I guess it's okay. Well, just because it's okay in society doesn't mean that it's okay in God's eyes. One of the things I was thinking about with this over the past couple of days is that God is a disruptor. He can be a disruptor. God can be a disruptor in our lives. Most of us don't like that because most of us like things to just stay the way they are. We want everything to be smooth and peaceful and calm and quiet. And sometimes we're willing to be so peaceful, calm, cool, and quiet that we just sort of lay down with evil and we snuggle up to it and we pretend like it's really not a big thing. We become accepting of it. When that happens... God feels like he has full right and privilege to just jump into our lives or jump into society, to jump into our church, to jump into our home, and disrupt things. To turn things upside down. Verse 16. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded, and not not all of the Jewish people, but the religious leaders who were there, the people who were in charge, the people who... Um, had worked out a deal with the Roman authorities. Probably Annas, who was the high priest at the time, which was really more like a, a godfather type guy. They demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? That's an interesting thing to say to God, isn't it? Our our mission statement at Rocky River Church is to give people the best opportunity possible to become fully committed, growing followers of Jesus Christ. There ought to be two questions that every committed, growing follower of Jesus Christ asks him or herself all the time. The first question is, God, what is it in my life that you need to get rid of? What is it in my life that you need to drive out? Now it's not completely clear to us at this point in John's gospel, but like I've already mentioned, what what Jesus is really referring here and, and, and what the temple of God is gonna come to be known as is our own lives. Our hearts, our lives. And so we should always be asking ourselves Jesus, what is it that you need to drive out of my life? What's keeping me from following you? What's keeping me from serving you the way? I want to serve you, or the way I should serve you, or the way it's in my heart to serve you? What's in my calendar that keeps me from serving you the way I ought to? What what are the hobbies in my life that tie up all of my best energy and my time and constantly give me an excuse to keep from working and serving in your house? A Christian man ought to always be asking Jesus, what what are the impurities in my life? What are the thoughts? What, what What are the places that I'm going to, that ought to be kicked out of my life because they stand between you and me? And every Christian ought to be asking himself or herself, what are the blind spots? What are the things that I can't see in my life? That are keeping me sinful and from living the life that God has created me to be. That's one big question. Here, here's the other question, the second question How do I have more zeal for the house of God? You know what the word zeal means? It means passion, desire. The disciples, when they saw Jesus' reaction uh, to what was going on in the temple and turning over the the money changers, and there's coins and paper money going, going everywhere, and there's animals that are being rushed out, and then the religious leaders are shouting at Jesus to give us some proof of who he is and why he's doing these kinds of things. They they remembered Psalm sixty nine, where it's a reference to Jesus, the Messiah. That he will have a zeal and a great passion for the house and the things of God. You and I ought to always be asking God, how do I have more zeal for your house? How do I have more zeal for the godly things? How should I approach worship on the weekends? So I want to give you a couple things. Again, I know that God inhabits the lives of the people who love Him and serve Him. I know that God inhabits the environment where His people are praying. And so this church building or any any church building wh- where the name of Jesus is invoked, it, it, it's, not, it's not built after the same pattern of the temple, but it is where we gather up to worship God. There ought to be a respect for it. You know, in, in, some, in some ways, while I love church the way we do it, and, and as a part of the way we do it, we dress this way. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm here in my shorts and my, my sneakers as well. And, and I, I love that. It would be hard for me to go back and do something different. I mean, I have suits and ties. I enjoy wearing them occasionally. But usually if I'm wearing a suit and tie... It's not good news. Somebody's either getting married or buried. Uh, And the only ones that are not laughing are newlyweds. You know, here, here I am behind the pulpit with my bottle of water. You're out there with your cup of coffee, and I think that's fine, but you ought to pick up your coffee cup and take it with you when you leave. You, you, ought to, uh, you ought to pretend that this floor, I know that you look at it and you think, well, it's only stained concrete, but you ought to pretend like this is your mama's white carpet, the carpet in the dining room that you didn't even get to go in until you were like 17 years old. So that you don't spill stuff all over the floor. You shouldn't let your kids just run all over the church. You, you, you need to teach them that some, some spaces are sacred, some, some buildings are a little, little different than others. You, you respect the place where God's people gather up to worship. You come on time, M- mostly so that you're you're not rushing in. And, and by the way, be, being on time, like let's say if you're, let's just compare it to work. If you're supposed to be at work at seven thirty, if you get there at seven thirty, you're not on time. You're late. You need to be at work early enough so that you can get everything ready, so that when 7.30 hits, you're ready to start working. You don't just drag in at 7.30. Worship ought to be the same way at 8.30, 9.45, 11.15. Shouldn't have to come sliding into the parking lot. Running into Church. That was a big deal in the house of God. Uh, l- l- let me show you one, one or two more pictures. Um, Don, I can't remember now the the picture order. That's a model of the temple. So, so actually, the place I'm about to show you would be this place here. All right, these are the southern steps of the temple. This, just inside, if you look down here, you can just faintly see where the doors would have been when Jesus was alive on the earth. But You see these steps, that's about half of the steps or maybe a third of the steps that you see there. They're they're really much deeper and much longer than that. But I, I want you to notice this. You see how wide this step is? Can you see that? Versus this step here. See how narrow this step is? And then, I, th- I think in the next picture, Dawn, you, you can even see it. Just uh, one more. One more. One more. All right, go back. My bad. Go back one. One more. All right, go back to the other one, the steps. I'm sorry. All right, we don't need that other picture anyway. You can see everything perfectly fine right here. (laughs) There are different widths on the steps, different heights, and that's all the way up. In fact, you can see, like, um, look look right here. You see the height of that step? Now look at how much it changes here or right here. And some of the top are even higher. You know why they built the steps that way? It's not because it's not c- they didn't know how to measure things up. It's because they knew that when they were having the big festivals like, like Passover, that there, there would be thousands and thousands of people coming and that they would be running up those steps. And so you might be able to run up the first few, but, but after a few lengths of steps, the steps are wider and they're higher. So now you're having to stop and take a couple of steps on that one step, and then you're having to step way up. It's crowd control. It's to slow people down. It's to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not just walking into your home, or you're not just walking into a movie theater. You're walking into God's house. So slow down, and remember where you are, Remember whose house you're in. Remember why you're here. Focus up on God. When you come to God's house, don't come empty. Everyone who who came to the temple had to bring a half a shekel, which was about 20 cents. It was a temple tax, and it wasn't something that the new regime had put in. It was something that God had given the people to do and bring all the way back when He started this custom in the book of Exodus. It was an offering that was made for the atonement of their sins. It reminded them that the place they were in cost something to build. There are priests in it. It cost something to maintain them. It cost something to pay for the sacrifices that were being offered up. It's why God says in Malachi chapter 3, if you will make sure that their Are enough resources in my house? If you'll make sure that there's bread enough in my house, I'll make sure that you can't build enough barns to hold all of the blessings I will pour into your house. When you come, don't don't come empty-handed. Give something, even if even if you're not a full tither, or, or give something. Let me tell you something. It, it will change the way you look at church. It will, it will change the way you think about church. Being generous is a trait that comes straight from God. And all of us who are a part of God's house, we all have a responsibility to take care of the place where we worship. When you come into God's house, don't just expect the same old, same old. Don't just expect the status quo. Expect God to do something or, or move into your lives. You, you know how a, a temple turns into a flea market? It happens when people are no longer considering God when they they no longer think about the bigness and the greatness of God that they have put their faith and their trust on. It's when they they stop believing in miracles. It's when they stop believing that God has a plan and purpose for their lives. It doesn't happen overnight. It, it, It certainly happens over time. Jesus answered the religious leaders back when they said, "Well, whose who's authority do you have here?" Jesus said, "Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days." This big, huge building, the, the, the temple had stones in it that, that came at least a 100 feet out of the ground, some of them weighing as much as 80 tons. And so the, the building had been under construction for 46 years. It would be under construction another 19 years before Titus and the Romans finally came in and just pulled it all down because they were tired of dealing with the Jewish people. But they couldn't imagine that someone could tear down this building. And, and since it had been under construction so long, how in the world would you rebuild it in, in just three days? The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You know what? Sometimes God gives us a verse or a sermon or some key lesson in our lives, and we know it's him but we don't know exactly what to do with it. We don't know exactly what it means. But then there is that aha moment. Like, like for the disciples here, they didn't understand as Jesus was talking about destroying the temple. They, they, thought, they, they thought he was talking about this big stone building as well. They didn't know that Jesus meant his body. Even after Jesus was crucified, it wasn't until after he resurrected from the grave that they understood what he meant. They had no expectation that Jesus was going to rise from the grave. That they didn't understand all of those things. But once he came back to life, they remembered the story. And it was like a light bulb came on. Oh, yeah. I I remember now. That's what Jesus meant. He wasn't talking about this big stone building. He was was talking about his, his own life. Sometimes God puts you in a situation, calls you to a place, and you don't know why. Or, or you think it's one thing, it turns out to be that and, and maybe something else. Like you, you move down from Mississippi, and you think it's all about you young and graduating from high school. Congratulations. And that happens, but then you realize that God had Other things, too. He wanted to draw you closer to Him. He wanted to get rid of some stuff in your life, to shape some things up, to move some things around. And you didn't know it when it started, but now looking back, you see it. Listen, sometimes things happen in our lives, and we don't know why they're happening. or We can't imagine that God could somehow... Use that for good when it seems so bad. And then he does. And you think, okay, now I know why my mom or my dad suffered this way. Or now I know what this illness is about. Or now, now, now I can put my bankruptcy in a whole different life context now I see that I I had to let go of that job for this job. Last few verses. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men He did not need man's testimony about man. He knew what was in a man. That should be a sobering thought. It's meant to be a warning. I hope you'll receive it as as a warning. The warning is you can fool some people in your life. Let's just say you can fool them all, including yourself. The one you can't fool is Jesus. He knows what's in our heart. John says this in in such a way and he puts it intentionally right here to make us think about our own lives. John knew that some of the people in in that crowd who will sort of get on the bandwagon because they they knew the temple needed to be cleaned out. And so they, they get on that bandwagon. John knew that some of those very people would also be in the same crowd three years later crying, crucify him. Some people claim to be one thing when they're really not. They claim to know Jesus, but they don't act like it. They claim to know Jesus, but they don't live like it. They claim to know Jesus, but you couldn't tell it from their Twitter account. Or if you looked at their Instagram account. John puts it here to be reflective. So so let me ask you, are you following Jesus? Or have you fooled yourself? Are you just good at fooling the people around you? Are you zealous for the house of God and the things of God? Or in your life, is it just all for show? Are you just here on a Sunday morning because you grew up in the south, in the buckle of the Bible belt, and so you just think, well, I need to be at church on Sunday morning. Or are you really following Him? Are there things in your life that need to be kicked out? Let's pray about them. Will you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful for Your Word, the Bible. We're grateful for the things that You teach us through it. Lord, we ask You to forgive us of our sins. All of us are sinners. But Lord, help us also to reflect on our own faith relationship with you. We should all ask ourselves right now in this moment, am I, am I really following Jesus or do I just have myself fooled? Have I been thinking about you today or am I only thinking about what I'm going to do when I get out of here? Lord, those those are questions that only, only we can answer in heart conversation with you. And you know what's in our hearts. So Lord, again, we ask you to forgive us of our sins. We ask you to forgive us if we've been frauds, only pretending or only following you with our words and not our actions. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Jesus, I would also like to pray for the the families and the friends and loved ones of the victims that were killed overnight in Orlando. So many hurt, at least 20 dead. Lord, it's it's moments like this that we realize we are in a broken, fallen world.